I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. These are public officials who really wanted to feel close to athletes, uh, famous athletes, famous people who made them feel important and powerful. There's one other thing I think that's going on here, which is that Mississippi is 50th in almost everything good, right? But one thing we do really well is we have great athletes that come out of this state. Um, we have great talent there. And I think that that um, is another thing that leads us to regarding these people, like, as you said, sort of as gods in Mississippi. Hey, everybody, this is Richard Deitch, and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. The guest this week is Anna Wolf. She's an investigative reporter writing about poverty and economic justice at Mississippi Today. Um, she's won numerous awards for her work. Previously worked at the Clarion Ledger, which is Mississippi's statewide daily newspaper. And we get into what is a sprawling welfare scandal in Mississippi. And if you have read about this, you have read about, obviously, Brett Favre's involvement here. Uh, Anna Wolf has been at the forefront of this reporting, and she's done really, really incredible work. And so she lays out what is going on in Mississippi regarding this welfare scandal, Brett Favre's involvement, um, text messages that have now been entered into the public sphere between Brett Favre and the head of this nonprofit, between Brett Favre and the former governor of the state, and then a little bit into just um, this whole notion of celebrity and enabling celebrity, which obviously has, um, you know, has been part of this podcast before, just in terms of how uh, coaches and athletes and famous people are covered. Um, Anna Wolf is really, really doing incredible work. I, I cannot recommend following her on social media or following her work at Mississippi, Mississippi Today uh, more highly, and I really appreciate her time. So about 40 minutes or so with Anna Wolf, investigative reporter at Mississippi Today, coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. Okay, as I said at the top, Anna Wolf is an investigative reporter writing about poverty and economic justice at Mississippi Today. During her journalism career, she's worked at the Clarion Ledger. That's uh, Mississippi's um, statewide daily newspaper. She's been an investigative reporter for the Center for Public Integrity. She's won numerous awards for her work, and she's here today regarding her eye-opening and vital reporting on a massive or I should say an alleged massive criminal scandal in which prominent Mississippi officials misspent or stole millions in welfare funds intended for the nation's poorest residents. Anna Wolf obviously does not do a lot of sports media podcasts. The connection here, of course, is Brett Favre. I cannot recommend her work highly enough at Mississippi Today. You should also follow her on um, social media, including her Twitter feed. She's doing, I mean, just absolutely important reporting. And I'm really pleased to be joined 
by Anna Wolf. Anna, welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You got it. All right. So let's um, let's start here, if we can. For those not familiar with Mississippi's sprawling welfare scandal, what has happened in your state? Sure. So I guess I'll take it back to the beginning of sort of the unfolding of this scandal back in 2020. Six people were arrested from the state auditor's office after he had investigated the state's use of funds from a federal program called Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, which is most commonly referred to as the welfare check. It's the fund that provides uh, very poor families with cash welfare assistance. Um, You know, this federal program is a block grant, so it allows states to use the money very flexibly. So it doesn't just have to go to direct payments to very poor families, but also to other kinds of anti-poverty programs like um, parenting classes and after-school programs and workforce development programs. So over the last four years, about four years of uh, former Governor Phil Bryant's administration, this money just kind of flowed out the door of the Department of Human Services to all these kinds of wild programs. Um, You just saw the uh, director of the department kind of throw out any kind of um, accountability and guidelines and reporting on how this money should be spent. And it ended up going in all these uh, crazy places. So after the arrests um, of the former welfare director and a nonprofit founder and a few other people in 2020, we've kind of been learning more and more about how all this happened um, since then. And one of the big questions has been, what was the former governor's role in all of this misspending? Um, And that really ties back to the Brett Favre story, where after the arrests, we learned that a company that had received $2 million in these welfare funds, it was a pharmaceutical startup company, um, was actually tied to Favre. And Favre was the one that encouraged the welfare officials to put this welfare money into this company. Um, after that, we learned that $5 million had gone to a volleyball stadium at University of Southern Mississippi. That was another FAR project where he had encouraged and influenced the welfare officials to funnel money from the welfare program to this volleyball stadium. Fast forward to today, there are more things happening within a civil suit that the state is bringing against folks who receive this money improperly. And uh, Brett Favre is one of those individuals who's being sued right now by the state. Um, And within that suit, the defendants are um, attempting to, to bring Phil Bryant's role to light here. And in doing that, they've produced text messages that show that Brett Favre was really communicating with this nonprofit founder and the governor in order to funnel this money to the volleyball stadium. And that's where we are today. Okay, that's a great uh, um, synopsis of this. And just again, for the listeners, uh, many of you, at least who are sports fans, know this. That's Brett Favre's alma mater, correct? The University of uh, Southern That's right. And in terms of volleyball, um, his daughter played volleyball at this university before transferring to LSU. That's so right. That's sort of the, the volleyball connection there. Okay. You have said that, um, and this is absolutely accurate, one of the sort of uncomfortable truths of this story is that it took the star power of Brett Favre for people to notice nationally, for more of the national media to become interested in this case. I wonder from a journalist who's been, who lives in the state, who's been on the ground doing this reporting. So how do you look at that? On the one hand, it's obviously going to give your reporting some national um, coverage. 
On the other hand, it's it, there's a very fair argument to be made that the only time people started caring about this was not um, about the the poor people of Mississippi, but because a famous football player becomes involved. Yeah, it's unfortunate. You know, I I actually had started reporting on this particular federal program long before the scandal was um, revealed. And the reason that I was doing that was because I knew that if this money was so flexible, states could use it basically however they wanted, then I could use that as sort of a microcosm for how the state addresses poverty. So that would be the best place to look to see what the state's um, you know regard for the poor is. And that's what I was interested in, is exposing, you know, why is Mississippi the poorest state in the country? Why are our public assistance programs so meager? You know, we have so much suffering in this state, such a high poverty rate, and people are not able to get the help that should be available uh, to them by the federal government. And why is that? And, you know, I never dreamed that someone like Brett Favre would be um, wrapped up in this story about poverty in Mississippi that was never my aim. Um, but it is interesting to think about the fact that, you know, the only reason this national attention is on this story and on all of this suffering in Mississippi with regards to poverty um, is because his name was connected to this. It could have, that money could have gone to anyone. And frankly, the money could have been spent legally and still never helped anyone. That's the, that's the systemic issue within our social safety net programs that, um, that the money, it, there's no one actually checking up and holding officials accountable to actually producing outcomes for the people who need help. And, um, and so the money could have even been spent legally and still it would have not made a difference for the people in poverty who I uh, cover on a daily basis. So on one hand, I'm glad that, you know, this story is getting out there and that unfortunately, you know, these big names are involved um, because it's drawn the spotlight to it. For context, do you do you happen to know what the average um, like median household income or average salary of of a of a person working in Mississippi is roughly? So, so I want to say the average um, household income is around forty five thousand. That's kind of a um, I, I will say one in five people in Mississippi live in poverty. Wow. Um, yeah. So and then that number goes much higher when you're talking about children too. Um, okay. And again, if, if I am off on anything, please correct me. Um, most of my questions obviously sort of are taken from your reporting and some of the other reporting that I've read in the state. So Brett Favre has at some point a contract with a nonprofit that, that is obtained by you guys at Mississippi today. It lays out the scope of work that he's supposed to do. Um, like within this, contract like what what is he supposed to do is is he using his name to promote at least on face like activities for children that like provide like more healthy exercise or something like i think this gets back to what you're saying is like what is really frustrating just as a citizen who cares is there are legal ways that they could have pulled this off right where he could be a figurehead and just, you know, I'm making this up. I was like, come up with like the Brett Favre program for increasing health, right, in Mississippi. And it all would have been legal. Like, that's what's incredible about this. Well, I think there are some people who are who are going to argue that the volleyball stadium was illegal um, maneuvering. I mean, right. what they did, what they didn't just embezzle the money from the TANF program 
and put it in the volleyball stadium, they wrote a creative grant that suggested that the nonprofit was going to lease property on the campus and they were going to use the buildings, use the facilities to provide programming to people in poverty. So, you know, have offices where people could come and, you know, but they're not going to get any direct assistance. They're not going to get their light bill paid. They're not going to get food assistance. They're going to get uh, a referral or, you know, sent to a parenting class. And I mean, how patronizing, right? But, you know, you're right. Um, this contract, I think, between the nonprofit that was receiving all the welfare money and Brett Favre has sort of been a distraction, I think, from the larger story because he did receive this million dollar contract from the welfare program. And there was a written contract that was obtained by the auditor's office to suggest what he was supposed to do for that money. And the big headline has been that he was paid for speeches that he never gave, right? But um, I think that there's some question about whether that contract is even real. I mean, most of what they agreed on was verbal and simply just, I'll cut some PSAs for your organization in order to get this money. And it wasn't for Farb to put in his pocket necessarily. The text messages that we released last week showed that it was just another way to get more money to the volleyball stadium. So to, to kind of hone in and focus on that PSA contract is a, a little misguided, I think. Um, he's going to say that he did do the work that he was paid for, which was to cut radio ads, like you said, to um, promote this program that these nonprofits were running, which was called Families First for Mississippi. And they were blasting, they had advertising all across the state for what they were doing for families, which was very little in reality. So uh, let me know if I'm correct about this. The the text messages that we have read between Brett Favre and the nonprofit, Brett Favre and the former governor of Mississippi. Does this become part of the public sphere because the lawyer representing the nonprofit charged with spending welfare dollars um, has put that into some kind of uh, civil case or criminal case? How, I, I guess what I would ask from the reporting end, like how, did, how does the public learn about these text messages? Because I think in terms of a visceral reaction, you read that stuff and and it's like man like um it shows you like how much the importance of access to leaders right the importance of of how things sort of work behind the scenes is when people can text with the governor or yeah. text with you know what i'm saying like this is how sort of things get done so how did totally. how, yeah how did how did the public how did we how did we as the public learn about this right so these most recent text messages were entered into the civil court case by the nonprofit founders attorney and in doing that they're trying to say look what exists that we know about um, as a way to compel the former governor, Phil Bryant, to um, responding to a subpoena that they've issued on him. So they've asked him to produce even more documentation and communication related to his involvement in the volleyball stadium project. And they produce these as kind of a way to say, look what what we know is here and what else could there be? There were also, there were other text messages. Your, your point is, actually, is, is perfectly right. There were other text messages that we we got through other channels that we published back in April. That story didn't make as much of a splash nationally, but those were text messages that we obtained between Phil Bryant and Brett Favre directly. And the, those are messages where Brett Favre was telling the governor that he would offer him stock in this company, this pharmaceutical company, in exchange for his help as governor. 
And they were communicating about this company that, again, received $2 million in stolen welfare funds from this nonprofit. And, um, and, and Phil Bryant, to this point, has sort of escaped all accountability for this expenditure. And two days after he left office, he agreed by text message with the company's owner to accept that stock and enter a deal with them, which is just, I mean, that's explosive stuff. And those are text messages that we have. Um, and it kind of shows exactly, like you said, the influence that Barb had over our state leaders and sort of the, you know, how kind of willy nilly are our public officials um, spending these dollars and administering these programs that they would just kind of say, oh, yeah, Brett Favre wants a million dollars here, two million dollars here, you know, make it happen. You let me uh, again. um I believe this is directly from your reporting or previous reporting in Mississippi today. There was a point in 2020, maybe you were the reporter on this, but there's a point in 2020 where someone from Mississippi today asked Brett Favre directly by text if he had discussed the volleyball project with former Governor Phil Bryan, and Favre responds back to the reporter, yes. no? Is that, that's correct. Okay. Yeah, that was so me. on the, so, so that was you. Okay. So he's on the record in 2020 to you saying that he has never discussed this with the governor. That's right. And that's pretty well contradicted by these text messages that we now have. So in the beginning, you know, the story was really about that pharmaceutical company. Again, the pharmaceutical company received this $2 million. Um, you've probably heard Favre talk about it in national media. He has gone around saying that, you know, he's um, working with this scientist to develop this cure for concussions. And he was trying to get state buy-in or buy-in really for anyone he could get money from to invest in this company to get uh, the project through the, you know, phase one and clinical trials. And, um, and, and that company is listed in the initial indictment. So, you know, here's people probably going to prison over this money going to this company. And, um, and like, sure enough, Brett Favre was the one who sort of influenced the payment. And then that's when we started talking to him initially saying, okay, what conversations were you having with the governor at the time? What conversations did you have with the governor also about the volleyball stadium? And he said that he did not. Okay. You, you, you are now, at least based on your reporting, you're dealing with Brett Favre's lawyer at this point, mm -hmm. correct? That's right. Uh, all right. Are you dealing directly at all with Brett Favre? No, he, no. <laughs> Okay, he's he's not answering. He actually blocked me. Anymore. He blocked me on Twitter, so I can't see his Twitter no. anymore. <laughs> um, okay, his for um, for public consumption here. His lawyer, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but his lawyer is saying that his client Brett Favre had no idea that these funds were diverted from like that should have been that should have gone to the poorest right. members of the state it should have been welfare funds so the the lawyer is saying that brett had no idea where the money came from am i is that an accurate assessment of what the lawyer tells yes reporters like yourself yes okay do you again understanding that you're not a um um you're not a lawyer yourself in layperson terms where would farb's potential criminal liability stand on all this I think it is going to be crucial for um, prosecutors if, you know, if they want to tackle this volleyball project and who all was responsible. I, I do think that they're going to have to show that either he knew or should have known or knew that his conduct was improper in some way. And I think that 
the texts that show how they were operating in secrecy. He actually told the nonprofit founder at one point, if you give me this money, is there any way that the media can find out where it came from and how much? And so while he says that he didn't know the money came from welfare, those communications sort of suggest that he knew that something wasn't quite right, or they were sort of bending the rules in some way. Now, it is important to note that the volleyball stadium and the way that that money was funneled, um, because the prosecutors have said that they disguised the payment as a lease. And so that disguising is important in terms of criminality. And in that plea deal where this individual has pleaded guilty to doing that, it does say in that paragraph that this person worked with John Davis, the former head of the welfare department and others unnamed to funnel this money there illegally. And those others have not been revealed yet. So prosecutors clearly have their eyes on somebody. I'm going to get to uh, a couple more smaller things with Farb in a second. I, I read that non uh, the forensic auditors who have sort of looked at all this have said that they believe these nonprofit leaders have misspent at least $77 million in funds that were supposed to help the needy. In my experience, and in reading this, uh, in reading stories like this, they always undersell that number. Do you think that's accurate, that it's $77 million, or could it really be more likely that that, that number is so much greater um, that really should have gone to people who, who could honestly use, use the funding that did not go to the, 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 the people in need? There's a really big question here about, you know, what is criminal and actual or, or actual misspending, you know, waste, fraud and abuse, and what is just bad government, right? And so there are a lot of things that we're looking at that they were spending money on that you and I would, would say is quite misguided or dumb, rather, <laughs> um, things that did not. Or, or, or perhaps cruel, depending on how you want to look at it, right, versus who should get it. Right, right. I mean, you're talking about programs that, you know, maybe maybe it's a after school like sports program or something like that. And that's a very positive thing, but they didn't guide it to people in poverty. They didn't make sure that needy folks got that program. And so it was just, you know, middle class to upper class kids who were benefiting from it. You know, these are the kinds of things that, um, you know, you have to take each example by on its face and see if, you know, which category it falls into. But to your larger question of, do you think that it was more money? I absolutely do. The forensic auditors only looked at this one program that we've been talking about, temporary assistance for needy families. There are other block grants that the state 100% manipulated to use the way that they wanted to and not to help people. There's a, a fund called the Child Care Development Fund. It is the fund that provides child care vouchers to working class parents. And there was a five-year period during about this time in the last years of Bryant's administration that not a single parent got approved for a new voucher in five years. So where did all that money go? That program has not been forensically audited yet. So in terms of is the 77 number, is that a small number? I mean, I think it, if, they really, if they really followed every dollar, it would be massive. And I'm not saying that all of that was stolen, right? I'm just saying that it wasn't spent in the way that it was intended to. What is the, what, what is the role right now of the, cover, of the current governor, Tate Reeves? Like, has he commented or is he involved in this or is he putting his hands in the air and saying this happened prior to my administration and it's not something I'm going to be involved in? 
So he became governor about two weeks before the arrests. And, you know, in the last two and a half years of the beginning of his administration um, has sort of been dominated by this scandal. Um, and, you know, he he wasn't the governor at the time. The governor oversees the Department of Human Services. Um, so Phil Bryant was the governor at the time that the scandal occurred. Uh, Tate Reeves has appointed this new director who is supposed to be cleaning up the agency. But that agency is also the one um, in charge of the state civil suit. And so Tate Reeves has had a lot of control over who gets sued, how much money they're going after. And the attorney that the department hired to bring this civil suit really wanted to include the volleyball stadium as a purchase um, to, to question in that lawsuit. And the governor's office made him take it out before he filed it. Um, Fast forward to last summer, uh, the attorney was also, again, with the uh, other defendants trying to subpoena uh, records and communication related to the volleyball stadium. And he was fired. He was terminated from the case directly after issuing that subpoena on the Athletic Foundation at Southern Miss. Um, So, you know, that was a huge story over the summer where it's like, why are we not trying to get to the bottom of who is responsible for funneling $5 million into this volleyball stadium? Wow. Okay, a couple more here. Again, you are not a sports reporter. I I have no idea your background, like if you're familiar, like if are do you are you, do you are you someone who follows or watches the NFL? No. Okay. All right. So then, your uh, but I know I know point who Brett Favre ref- is. <laughs> right. Okay. But I was just say like your point of reference here in terms of Brett Favre is you know him as someone who's a famous person in Mississippi, but it's not like you're a someone who'd be watching the NFL on a week to week basis. The reason I asked you that is because I wonder now in terms of. Um, obviously trying to learn as much about a subject that you're reporting on as possible. Like, did you look through Farb's career? Because this is somebody, while obviously a a great athlete and and one of the best quarterbacks in the history of that league, has been massively enabled by the sports teams that he played with. Um, He was part of an investigation uh, by the NFL, some would say a half-ass one, where he was, I believe, fined um, fifty thousand dollars after he sent lewd photos to a a, a woman, um, Jen Sturger, whose career was really derailed because of all this and because of all the um, publicity. Um, and then Favre, of course, went on to continue to play for another team and and eventually made the Hall of Fame and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah, you know what? From your per- go well, ahead. Well, I say that I I am not. Uh- a sports fan. I have been surrounded by a, a lot of sports people, sports writers, that kind of thing. So I am familiar with that, but it, it you know, and I am learning more actually about that because that was, you know, that was kind of a, a while ago. I think I was in high school when that happened. Um, yeah, yeah. But there were, there's other scandals too. He was connected to a pain cream uh, pharmaceutical compounding scheme that was some hundreds of millions of dollars scandal in Hattiesburg. And he was never charged or, or tied directly um, in that way, but he certainly was, um, you know, had it, had his hands in that and people went to prison for that. So the reason I asked this and the reason I, I sort of started the question as I did was I wonder, has this given you, I mean, not has it, it clearly has, but 
what what do you make of actually reporting and seeing this firsthand on celebrity and like sort of what people do when it comes to celebrity? Because if nothing else, like if nothing else in this case, if you just read Phil Bryan's text to Brett Favre and you just take them on face, it is very or the nonprofit director. It's fascinating how many people are really trying to sort of kiss up to Brett Favre. And it shows you the power of celebrity. And in my world, like I have seen this with Favre, obviously, for 10, 15 years. You know, I'm also I've worked for Sports Illustrated and The Athletic. In many ways, we have been guilty of godding up athletes as well. But from your perspective, someone who is not part of this world, I wonder just for you how you have perceived this, because now this has been um this now comes into your orbit a little bit and you've now been able to see this firsthand. Absolutely. I mean, I think you hit it on the head. Um, the theme of exalting celebrity and exalting athletes has been inherent throughout this entire scandal. And it's something I identified pretty early on in the beginning. You've got money going to Brett Favre. You've got money going to Marcus Dupree. Uh, best, there, best there never was Marcus Dupree. Yep. Yep. You've got money going to the three retired professional wrestlers, WWE um, legend, the million dollar man, Ted DiBiase. You've got money going to Paul Lacoste, another um, local athlete who was in the Canadian uh, professional league. Um, These are, there was a really interesting um, scenario where the head of the welfare department really was starstruck by these men. And this, and this, I think, uh, can be said about the former governor as well. These are public officials who really wanted to feel close to athletes, uh, famous athletes, famous people who made them feel important and powerful. There's one other thing I think that's going on here, which is that Mississippi is 50th in almost everything good, right? But one thing we do really well is we have great athletes that come out of this state. Um we have great talent there. And I think that that um, is another thing that leads us to regarding these people, like, as you said, sort of as gods in Mississippi. All right. I have two things for uh, left for you. And again, I really appreciate your time. And uh, and I am genuine on this. Thank you for your reporting. It's really vital. Um, you, you've said when people have asked you about sort of how to do this type of reporting, because you, you report on nonprofits a lot. Um, and you said it's kind of actually really, it's a a great quote because it's literally the opposite of how I, I think you love invoices and expenditure reports. You love sort of going through the forensics of this stuff. I I literally would want to jump out of a window before having to do that. Anna. um, but that's honestly how this reporting gets done. Like this is how people like you end up breaking stories and stuff. So can you give my listeners, because on this podcast, uh, I've interviewed obviously many, many people in, in my world, and we talk a lot about process and like how they mm-hmm. do their job. So how challenging is this reporting? Because at least even in my own preparation to try to ask you questions, it's like a labyrinth yes. and a maze to try to figure out sort of all these disparate parts. So how how challenging has this been for you just in terms of the reporting of it? So before the arrests in 2020, I had been trying to figure out what the state was doing with this money for about two years prior to this. I had had to file complaints against the Department of Human Services for failing to turn over records to me. Um, I was sending, you know, 
2,000 word emails every other day just saying, please give me some information about how this money is being spent because I can't tell what's happening. I can't tell who's being helped. You haven't provided me any information about the outcomes of people leaving these programs. So, you know, if if we're not giving money directly to families in poverty because we don't believe in that, we believe in helping them in other ways, well, then show me where that's working. Show me the effectiveness of that. Um, I ran into so many roadblocks trying to do that reporting, you know, thousands of dollars worth of um, uh, cost estimates for records requests that I was attempting to retrieve from the department. Um, you know, it was just kind of, it, I call it gaslighting because I think that they were really good at at kind of steering me in the wrong direction or telling me that what I was asking for was unreasonable or too difficult or, you know, what have you. But, um, you know, after the arrests, things became, became, became a little easier to figure out at the department. So I was able to, um, with the help of the auditor, you know, look to see where this mo- this money was actually recorded. And, um, but it's been very, very difficult. You know, you've got, we, I'm in a state that operates with such secrecy just in general. I mean, these state agencies are, I mean, they sent out an email just not too long ago, a couple months ago saying like, do not talk to Anna Wolf, right? Um, it's not like I can just call people up and, and get information and find out what's going on. I have to, um, you know, scrape and uh, and dig in order to get even just what you would think of as like basic information about how the department is running. Wow. Uh, all right. Last two things. Something you put out on Twitter really hit home. And sometimes like um, these kind of uh, comparisons are important and make sort of people like really able to visualize it. So there was a graphic that you put out basically that a volleyball stadium versus childcare for 920 families. So the, the having a volleyball stadium at Southern Miss and like what the cost expenditure for that would be versus Childcare for 920 families. So that that's the decision that somebody made. Um, there was another one, um, uh, self-help training from a WWE wrestler versus 22,704 electricity bills being paid. A horse ranch versus 494 rent payments. Um, this to me, like, uh, I don't know if this was your, sort of your graphic or how you did it or you found it somewhere else, but like this to me, like really, at least for the public at large, you kind of can understand like what this means. And it really, it sort of illuminates why poverty still exists when the money where that really could aid people goes to this stuff that at the end of the day is just, um, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's such, it's like a wealthy person's kind of fun, you know, it's vanity yeah. basically. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We put that together just to really illustrate the missed opportunities here. You know, I mean, it's one thing to say Brett Favre got $5 million to build a volleyball stadium, but who was impacted, who missed out on that, uh, on those funds, on that assistance. Um, you know, I think the childcare example is a really good one because it's, you know, there's a lot of, uh, there's ideological differences about how to solve poverty, about how best to use funds to, to, to end poverty. And I think we should have that conversation. You know, maybe cash assistance has not worked uh, as well as it could have, but something like childcare is a true work support. You know, that's something that um, virtually every family ends up needing and it's so expensive. It's so unaccessible. It's so unaffordable. Um, and just a year's worth of childcare. Think about 
someone who is struggling to go to work because they don't have access to childcare, um, you know, all these other things. And then they just have that, that, that year to kind of get a leg up. Right. And what trajectory of success that that would put them on. Um, I think when you think about it like that, it really puts things into perspective. And then the last one, Anna, is just a, 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 a sort of a, um, for my own edification, um, I don't know where you're based. I don't know if you're based in Jackson or close to that. But what, what for my listeners, what is the latest when it comes to the water crisis in your state? And again, it's just it remains incredible that in 2022 there are places in the United States that do not have uh, clean water on a on a on a daily hourly basis. I, I am in Jackson, and the boil water notice um, was lifted a few days ago. I'm still filling up my cat's water bowl with bottled water. Um, because, you know, it's, it's hard to trust it now. Um, and, and long before this latest quote unquote crisis, I mean, we've been in crisis, right. But long before this latest, um, news cycle, the, the, I mean, you couldn't really drink the water. Um, we'd been under a boil water notice for two months prior to that. Um, and there are other things going on with the water that is, you know, beyond just this issue at the plant. Um, we've got um, high levels of lead because the water is corrosive. And so anywhere where there might be lead pipes, there's uh, corrosive water is leaching lead into the water. Um, you know, the state has is basically um, doing a takeover of our water system when they've ignored the city, you know, up to this point on providing assistance uh, to the city and, and filling budget holes. You know, we've got... Um, a water system that's just not financially supported because people aren't paying their water bills. We've got a screwed up billing system. So it goes on and on, but I'll just say that it, it definitely does. There are many overlapping for me, you know, not being able to drink my water and reporting on this welfare um, scandal. There are so many overlaps with just how the state regards people who are suffering. Well, Anna, I know it's not always easy, but, uh, but thank you for what you're doing. Um, and, and it's really vital reporting. Anna Wolf is an investigative reporter writing about poverty and economic justice at Mississippi Today. I've heard this conversation with regards to Brett Favre's uh, involvement here. Uh, you can follow Anna Wolf on Twitter at A-Y-E-W-O-L-F-E. Uh, you can follow her work at Mississippi Today. There is a place on that site where if you want to um, send them money to help uh, fund that publication, please do. Um, I mean, again, they're they're doing incredibly vital work for the people of that state. Um, and I know, again, you don't do a lot of sports media podcasts. Perhaps this is the only one, in fact. Um, but thank you for taking the time to do this. And uh, and I know sometimes, you know, you'd like, uh, you like you might not want to sort of come on and talk about this, but it's really important that you go on places. I saw you on ESPN doing outside the lines. Like it's really important, like that you uh, tell people what's going on there. You have a national voice now, and so. Um, I'm glad you're using it. And, uh, and thank you so much today for coming on the Sports Media Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for caring about the story. Okay, my thanks to Anna Wolf for coming on the Sports Media Podcast. Uh, I really appreciate uh, her work. And, uh, I mean, what an unbelievable reporter. Um, you know, thank, thankfully, there are people like that who, uh, who are out there uh, reporting this stuff. Uh, I just tip my hat. What, a, what an amazing reporter. Um, previous um, previous podcasts, if you are interested in these conversations, we just had Thursday Night Football on Prime Video executive producer Fred Gadelli and lead director Pierre Musa 
on uh, Amazon's first game, Chiefs and Chargers, and they take you behind the scenes of what that was like for them. For that uh, sports broadcaster turned agent, Alex Flanagan, and her journey from being a broadcaster to an agent. For that covering the NFL, a conversation with Jenny Rentis of the New York Times and Lindsey Jones of The Ringer. And then uh, before that, what's it like to produce and direct NFL games? We have Fox's top NFL producer, Richie Zions, Fox's uh, top NFL director, Rich Russo. You can head to the archives. Um, there should be uh, there should be stuff you like. Try to amp up uh, our uh, frequency when it comes to podcasts we've been doing two a week for a little bit. So uh, people seem to appreciate that, and uh, they're responding well to that. And I can't uh, thank Patrick Antonetti um, enough for uh, for his hard work. Uh, if you like this podcast, head to uh, wherever you get them. Leave us a five-star review and a nice note. That's how this podcast continues. Uh, let me shout out Jeff Radcliffe, who... Uh, left a five-star review and a nice note not too long ago um really really nice and and thoughtful of him to uh to go that deep uh, in the review and uh, yeah you leave a thoughtful review i'll probably mention it but at the end of the podcast i mean if you bash me i don't know about you that, but uh, but i appreciate it um thank you very much it, uh, it is how this podcast continues want to thank everybody cage 13 want to thank patrick anthony for all his hard work most of all thank you for listening we'll see you soon on the sports media podcast